read in the book of Jude saying in this final song that we have an assurance that is the blessedness of our soul to know that we are secure in Christ. And we have the promises of your word that tell us one day the struggle will be over and all that you saved us for will be realized. And so we thank you for these wonderful and magnificent promises. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. You have such infinite goodness and love that our hearts cannot conceive fully even here. In our best moments, we see but the smallest fringes of your ways. And one day we will see it even more full and more glorious and and how we long for that. But we thank you in the meantime, the encouragements you have given us in your word, the promises, the, the prophetic word that tells us of future events, that helps us to think clearly about who we are and what you're doing in this world. And so Lord, as we open your word together, we ask that you would reveal these things to us. Holy Spirit, that you would be our teacher and that you would help us to think rightly and accurately and with understanding about all that you have told us. For if it's in your word, it is for our good. If you've said it, then it's for us to understand and to learn and gain wisdom and hope from. And so those are the things we ask you to produce for your everlasting glory. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you would, open up your Bibles this morning, uh, not to Revelation, but to the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel. Daniel uh, comes right after that big prophetic work of Ezekiel, Ezekiel and Daniel. And so that's where we're going to turn our attention for the next uh, couple of weeks. So we'll uh, be there this morning, and then we'll try to wrap it up uh, next week as we consider what is known as Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks, the 70 weeks of Daniel. That's the title of this message. And, and before we get into it, I want to just make maybe some brief introductory comment, namely that, you know, maybe someone in your family, and uh, I know my mom is like this, uh, always wants to read the end of the book first. Like she gets, she gets too nervous to read it, all the stuff in, the, in between. Some of us would, would never want that because it ruins the thrill of the journey that the author is going to take us on until it gets to its final conclusion. And so, but when we come to Scripture, God has told us the end of the story. He has told us how things are going to work out. And of course, one big uh, banner over all of that is that God wins, that God will fulfill His purpose, that God is sovereign. He will bring about all of His promises, and He will complete them, and, and all of that. But he has told us that because if there's one thing that we need as the people of God is hope. And as we've mentioned many times before, the very essence of faith is hope. The, very, the people of God have lived all the way from the fall until the last person to live who knows God through Christ is that his people have lived by hope. They've lived on promises. They've lived looking to the future, none of which have ever been realized fully in the lives of the people of God. It's always in anticipation of what will come. And so God has told us that so that we could have hope, but so we could have wisdom, and so we could rightly think about uh, the world around us. Now, God doesn't tell us that in our individual lives. Sometimes we would like in our individual lives to know what the end of the story is, how are things going to turn out, how, how is my life going to be in 40 years and so forth. And, and God, in his wisdom, doesn't let us know that. I doubt that we could handle it. But he has let us know in the main and in the broad the things that he will accomplish 
And that is true for all of his people who trust in him. These will be the realities that help shape, again, how we view the world and give us hope. Give us hope that God is doing something. And God is doing something for his glory and for our good. And so Daniel certainly is one climactic example in all of God's revelation where he is reminding us that he is on the throne. He is accomplishing something in his, the lives of his people. And one summary of that is what he gives us in Daniel chapter 9 uh, in this account of what has been known as the 70th weeks. But before we get there, let me just briefly kind of bring us in, in a, in a very broad sense, into the context of Daniel, into the context of Daniel itself. Historically, Daniel covers the span of the first wave of the exiles into Babylon. So there were three waves of uh, judgment that God brought upon his people, Judah. They were three times that he removed them out of the land and put them into exile into another land. And the final of those was this great destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and the great suffering of his people. The book of Daniel was the first of these three waves of God bringing this judgment. This was in about 605 B.C. He brought again in about 597, and then the temple was destroyed around 587 B.C. But Daniel was a part of that first part where he took the nobles of the land, he took sort of the elite of the land, and he brought them to Babylon. And so Daniel is in Babylon from the beginning of God's judgment in the exile all the way to its completion. So that would be, as we'll uh, note later, about 70 years. The theological and prophetic span of Daniel includes both his present moment in Babylon all the way to the end of the age and the completion of God's purposes for his people and for that matter for the world, for his purposes for the, the is Israel, which also coincides with his purposes for the world. So it includes God's dealing with all of the nations, not only Israel, the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Antichrist, and the final establishment of Christ's eternal kingdom. And so the historical context of Daniel is the exile. The prophetic scope of Daniel is from his moment all the way to the end of the age. So God is revealing to us in a big panoramic what his purposes are for the nations. Now in a big picture here, in Daniel chapter 1 through 6, he deals primarily with God, the God of Israel, making himself known as the true God, ruler, and sovereign king of the nations to the ruler of those nations. As he does throughout many times through his prophets, here particularly in Daniel, this kingdom of a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, revealing his name, and I still care for them and protect them. Their God is still the only God who is. Now he does this first through a series of three visions that show God as the giver and remover of kings and kingdoms, and all of this in anticipation of the final kingdom that he will bring about. He secondly does this through his God displaying his power to humble and judge those rulers who exalt themselves against him and fail to give him glory as he did with Nebuchadnezzar as he was made to eat grass and look like a, 
disheveled, you know, with long hair and nails and so forth, until he was humbled to realize that God alone is the one to receive glory. And he does this through the special protection and honor that he gives to his people Israel through those appointed to him, as he protected Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire when they were thrown in, as he protected Daniel as he was put into the lion's den, and so forth, that all of the plots against God's people are will fail because God is the protector of his people. And so he reveals himself in that way as well. And he reveals himself in these visions culminatively by noting that God will establish his kingdom under the Messiah at the end of the ages and his purposes for Israel are fully realized. Now again, this is particularly important in light of the fact that the Jews were at that time a defeated and captive people. They were defeated in one uh, common banner over the, the conflicts of the ancient Near East was this, is that whoever won, it meant their gods were stronger. The stronger god beat the less strong gods. And so therefore the dominant gods were the gods that overcame another nation. And so here's Israel claiming to serve the one true God of heaven and earth and their temple, the very center of their worship, lay in shambles. The people are humiliated and defeated before this other king. And so it looked very doubtful that their god was very impressive at all. And so all the more this becomes significant to realize that no, God is the one who judges his people, God is the one who protects his people, God is the one who will restore his people, and God will do the same as he determines to do so even over the other nations of the earth. He is the God of the Jew and the Gentile. And so he is making this purpose, and he wants this known not only to Daniel as an encouragement, but again also to the pagan kings and to those who would stand in opposition to God. So we have this, and you just to give one example, in Daniel chapter 5, 13, Daniel was brought before the king, and the king spoke to Daniel, saying, Are you that Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father, the king, brought from Judah? That was basically a statement of derision, which is then almost immediately met Soon after, and actually that context of him even saying that when Daniel was brought before him is because this leader was given a frightening vision that in the end was to declare that his rule was over, that he was found short, coming up short of what God required and that he would be judged. And in fact, that very night, that leader, Belshazzar, was killed and was put to death by the judgment of God. And so it is that God wants to establish that he is on his throne and things are not always as they appear. And then we have chapter 7 through 12. And this deals more with the same uh, content of the vision. In other words, God's interaction with the nations. But it deals with it in more specific detail concerning the future of the nations and God's holy city, Jerusalem, and his covenant people, Israel. It addresses the final days of Israel and the rise and the culmination of man's hostility toward God under the final evil leader before God establishes his everlasting dominion under the Son of Man, the Messiah, and the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. It is this great promise that to this Son of Man was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom in chapter 7, and that all the peoples and the nations and men of every language might serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. That is the kingdom that is of the stone that came that was cut without hands and destroyed the statue in one vision, and it spread throughout all of the earth. This is what God ultimately has determined He will bring about, is a kingdom and a dominion from the one that he has appointed. And so 
as much as the kings of the world might seem to have might, uh, they are no more than they are no more than what God has determined they will be, and they are fulfilling ultimately His purposes. So God is in control. So what is the overarching point of this prophecy? It is to reveal this: God's sovereign plan for Israel. God's sovereign plan for Israel. That's the point. That's the point of Daniel. And that is the point primarily of what we'll look at in this, Dan, this prophecy of 70 weeks in chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. And so we're going to look at it in two broad sections. Uh, the first one we'll look at this morning and then we'll finish it uh, next week. The first is this, an overview of God's sovereign plan. We could really even say his sovereign purpose. What is his purpose in, for the nation of Israel, again, which also coincides with his purposes for the world? And then number two, what is the timetable for working out this plan? And what are the markers of the events that mark that, will, uh, that highlight his purposes for Israel and again for the world? Now, we're going to come back to the book of Daniel, actually, when we get to Revelation chapter 13. And we're going to spend some more significant time there, particularly as Daniel has much to say about this final evil ruler the anti- that we know as the Antichrist and his reign and the destruction that he will bring. So we are in months ahead going to come back. But this morning, we're going to look just very briefly at this small section in Daniel chapter 9, uh, verses 24 through 27. So let me begin by reading the passage, and then uh, we'll swing back around and and look at it more closely. So Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse uh, 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with the flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. And so in these words, God has encapsulated the entire history and the culmination and a summary, I should say, of all of his plans concerning the nation of Israel and the role that they would play in this age. Introducing, at the end of this role, the age to come. Now, interestingly, when before we come here into verse 24, uh, looking at this God's sovereign plan for Israel... The lead up to it, so verses 1 through, well, verses 1 through 19 are Daniel, who in the midst of the captivity and in the midst of the the humbling state that they're in, 
realizes, remember, reads in the book of Jeremiah, we won't turn there, Jeremiah chapter 25, 11, that God has revealed the amount of time that they will be in this humiliation. In other words, 70 years. 70 years. So he says that in verse 2 of chapter 9, that he observed in the books the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord uh, to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. In other words, they were there by God's judgment, they were sustained in that judgment by God, and they will be brought out of that judgment according to God's purposes and according to God's plan. And not only in some uh, vague sense, but in a very specific sense of 70 years, and it was written down through the writing prophet of Jeremiah. Upon reading this reality, Daniel then gives, he says in verse 3, he gave my attention to the Lord God to, speak, uh, to seek him by prayer, supplications, fasting, uh, sackcloth, and ashes. And so Daniel then gives this model prayer of confession and repentance in which he confesses, the text says, his own sins and the sins of his people. And he acknowledges in that that the condition they're in is right for them to be in because they have sinned against God. And God has rightly brought justice to them. Verse 5, we have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, rebelled, even turned aside from your commandments and your ordinances. Verse 6, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land, and so forth. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame. And he goes on. In other words, where we are, the humility that we are experiencing is right for us to experience because we have sinned, we have done wickedly, and you are righteous. And we would make just a footnote there that that is the model of true repentance. It's very similar to what David said in Psalm 51, that you are blameless when you judge. In other words, when we are truly repentant for our sin, that we take a full responsibility for our actions and we have no complaint against the consequences of it. We have full embrace of our sin, the consequences that God determines will come from our sin, and we are humbled under it. That's true repentance. If we confess our sin and then complain about consequences, it was never true repentance. It was proud. Well, David, uh, Daniel models here true repentance. He makes no, no excuses. He fully acknowledges his own guilt, even though he was a righteous man. And he fully acknowledges the guilt of his people and the righteousness and the justice of God and what he, was brought about, what he brought about. And then he says, he ends this prayer, and his great burden of his heart upon reading this isn't his own comfort and escape or even that of his people, but rather for the glory of God's name and the city, he says in verse 18, which is called by your name. And he says, we're not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. And then in response to this prayer, an angel Gabriel comes to him, Gabriel, who we also meet in the New Testament. But here he's coming to Daniel, and he's bringing to him a word, and it says uh, in verse 21, while I was still speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I'd seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness, and about the time of the evening offering, he gave me instruction with, and talked with me and said that he had come to give him insight and understanding. He came to give him insight and understanding. And it is this 
content of the 70 weeks that is that insight and is that understanding. And so let's consider it. And let's consider it first under, in verse 24, God's sovereign plan for Israel. And let's note under that to begin, the certainty of God's plan. The certainty of God's plan. It is certain. It is absolute. It will take place. Verse 24, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end to sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the holy place. Seventy weeks. Seventy weeks. He begins this insight and understanding by saying this is the definite amount of time that has been determined. No doubt there would be an echo here of the 70 years, but this is distinct. This is 70 weeks. In other words, 70 units of seven, quite literally, is what he's referring to here. A week. He's not. The purpose is to identify the amount of time that God will take to, again, accomplish his purposes. I want to make just a few observations here. This is when he says 70 weeks, a prophetic week. In other words, each of these weeks is not representative of just a day. So in other words, it's not 490 days. He's speaking here of 490 years. This is a prophetic week where each day will equal one year. And this was a common way of speaking uh, in the Old Testament. I mean, just from some brief examples, you can remember in Numbers 14, where they wondered for, because of uh, 40 days that they spent scoping out the land, and they came back and they wouldn't enter into the land of Canaan. And he says, so 40 years, each day that you were there is going to equal to a year that you're wondering about in the wilderness. Even in the law, there was this kind of representation in which they had a sabbatical year. Every seventh year was a Sabbath year in which they returned debts and freed slaves and so forth. And that was representative of a seven-day week. It was on the pattern, and so, and so on, and so forth. So the week here, each week, would equal seven years. And it would put the time frame then at 490 years. And it's also the only time frame that makes sense in the history of Israel. And one other brief note here, and we'll come back to this uh, later when we get uh, in the prophecy, is that a prophetic year here consists of 360 days, not 365 days. And this is made clear uh, both in Daniel chapter 12, at the, uh, the end of Daniel, when he talks about the 1290 days, which would be three and a half years, which is of a 360-day year, which was also identified as he's going to, we're going to get to in chapter 9. And the same thing is mentioned in relation to 42 months in Revelation chapter uh, 11 uh, and so forth, in Revelation chapter 12. The point here simply is this is a prophetic year where each day equals one year and that year consists of 360 days. So just kind of file that in the back of your head and we'll come back to it a bit later. What I want to note here, however... Is not only the time, but the certainty of what is going to come about in that amount of time that God has declared. Seventy weeks, Daniel, have been decreed for your people. That is, determined by God to accomplish His purposes. A sovereign decree from the only true sovereign of the universe. The one who created it, the one who sustains it, and the one who rules it for His own purposes. Let me remind you of this great statement in Isaiah chapter 46. 
And Isaiah chapter 46, by the way, is written to this people in captivity. Written before by Isaiah, so it was before they were in captivity, but he's addressing a future people in Isaiah chapter 46. Here are these people who would be in captivity, and he's reminding them that he is God who's on the throne, and he will deliver them, that his purposes are not thwarted, even though it may appear that way to their eyes. And he says this in Isaiah 46, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things that have not been been done, saying, my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all of my good pleasure. Now, we need to remind ourselves of that daily, don't we? We need to constantly keep this before our minds, that God is on his throne. He is in complete control. He is working out his sovereign purposes for creation, and we bring that up a lot because that is the very heart, that is the very ultimate goal of God revealing these things to Daniel and and everything he reveals to us. He's working out his sovereign purposes in creation, his kingdom, and in every individual life of his people. Every detail of our life is under the sovereign care and hand of God. Here, he says in Isaiah, speaking to the people of Israel as a whole, he declares the end from the beginning. But he also says to us as his people that he is sovereign over our own lives so that we could say with David in Psalm 139, in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was none of them. There was none of them. God is on his throne. And that is for God's people a great comfort. A great comfort. It means when tragedy strikes, it's not out of control. It means when you get bad news, it's not outside of God's sovereign purposes. It means when your world is crumbling around you, God is accomplishing something good that you cannot see. It means that God is on his throne. The great comfort of God's people is the promise that we get almost too used to hearing sometimes is that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. That ultimate good is being conformed to a son, being kept in his son, ultimately to receive all the promises that are yes and amen in his son. And so here he's telling his people, God is on his throne. You're out of your land that was promised to you by God. You are humbled and ashamed. The Psalms talk about them weeping by the river because of the shame that you are under, under uh, being called the people of God. The temple which you thought was indestructible lay in ruins. You're separated from family. Many of them suffered great atrocities as Nebuchadnezzar overtook Jerusalem when he came in. And yet his word is that God is in control. And I would hope that we remember that not only in the big picture as we look at the world around us, but that you remember that in your own individual life. God is absolutely sovereign, working out a purpose. It's just whether we will yield to him and submit to him. Now, I want you to note next here, however, that God is, bring, is revealing a certain plan. It's the certainty of God's purpose. And these purposes that he's revealing here deal specifically with the nation of Israel, and that is the Jews. Look at what he says. It has been decreed for your people and your holy city. Your people and your holy city, that is for the Jews. If you went back up to verse 18, just for example, he says there, 
He talks about the desolations in the city which is called by your name. He says he is concerned in verse 19 about for your own sake, your city, your people, your name. What was his city? What was his people? And where was his name centered in the giving of this prayer? The recording of this prayer. It was in Jerusalem. It was the Jews. It was the nation of Israel. That's specifically who he's referring to. He's referring to then 70 weeks for the nation of Israel. 490 years. The church is not specifically in view here, although God's plans for Israel will encompass his plans for the church and for the world. Now, a brief note here, and we'll come back to this later, not today, but later, that the prophetic anticipation here then depends on the presence of the Jews in the land, which is why those who hold to a dispensational position have always maintained the importance of Israel being returned to the land of Israel and building a temple, and reinstituting sacrifices. And so where, how we date, which we'll get into later, the, or how we acknowledge these events has everything to do with whether we understand them as being completed or whether there's events of these events that are still future. But if they are future, then we have a real temple, a real people, and a real land. Now, as God's covenant people, as I've noted they are the focus of the prophetic word here of the 70-week period. But again, it doesn't, it doesn't eliminate God's dealing with the Gentiles. These things are wrapped up together. And so it's important to understand that Israel's rejection of Messiah did not eliminate God's promises to them. It simply means that Israel has been set aside as a centerpiece of God's redemptive activity, which was the very purpose when we looked at Romans 11. Now again, we'll come back to this later, but the present reality that we find ourselves in is what Jesus referenced in Luke chapter 21, verse 24, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. It's what Paul referenced in Romans chapter 11 when he said, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In both of those contexts, that period of, of the Gentiles and the until is referencing a period of time from a destruction of uh, Jerusalem or for the temple in Jerusalem to a future time where God's attention will turn back to Israel. Both of those are bracketing that. As a matter of fact, following that in Romans chapter 11, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. He says after that, and Israel will be saved. So here... He is referring, though, to that one part of God's intention to, for the people of Israel and the Jews. And as I noted as well, this includes his purposes for the world. So the first, then, is God, the certainty of God's plan. It's the certainty of God's plan. It will come about. This will take place. These events are going to happen. Let's note secondly, and... Uh, Fairly quickly here, the culmination of God's purposes. And so here we're going to look just at verse 24. And in verse 24, he, he's giving the big picture. So what's going to happen is in verse 24, he's giving the big picture of these plans, sort of a summary view of these plans. And then beginning in verse 25, all the way down to verse 27, he's going to give a precise timetable. Specific events that are marked out by specific periods of times, which he identifies, which is going to comprise the fullness of this 70 weeks. 
So this then is the culmination of God's purpose. Now in this culmination of God's purpose, he identifies six specific accomplishments he will bring about. Six specific accomplishments. And the first three are going to address how he deals with sin, how he deals with the sin of his people, and the next three are going to be how he treats, acts towards them in grace. Now there is some... Uh, some mix of this, but primarily the first are going to deal with sin and the second with grace. We could say as well that the first three are primarily what Christ dealt with in his first coming and the second three are primarily focused on what he will bring about in his second coming. And so this is then the breakdown in general of these 70 weeks. Now let's note first here how we're dealing with sin. These are the first three of these six accomplishments of God. And again, how we understand these will have a direct bearing on how we understand these weeks and whether or not they are fulfilled. So first of all, deal with sin. How he deals with sin. When Christ came first, Christ came, yes, in fulfillment of the promises that were anticipated of the Messiah, his ruling, his kingship, and so on and so forth. It was... He was presented to Israel as the king of Israel. But he was more than a king. He was also a savior. He was also the one who would redeem his people from his sin. And that was the part that they missed. That was the part that they missed. They saw his first coming primarily in relation to victory and triumph for the nation of Israel. And they missed that God's purposes was more comprehensive than that. It was to first atone for their sin. Let me just read one passage. Hebrews, don't turn there. Hebrews 9.28. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin for those who eagerly await Him. In other words, there are two comings of Christ in which God is accomplishing two different things in each one of these comings. The first was for the Messiah to be rejected and to deal with sin so that he would, even at the hands of his own people as well as the Gentile nations, be offered up as a sacrifice for sin in obedience to the Father and fulfillment of Scripture so that he would provide atonement. Atonement. He would be a substitute for his people. He would be the foundation of their salvation and of all of the new covenant promises. He's going to return a second time that is going to bring about the fullness of those promises which are not yet realized by his people. Now let's look at them here. And we're going to go fairly quickly here. So what are they? The first of this in dealing with sin, he says, to finish or complete, some could say restrain, Sin, or finish the transgression. The transgression. Could also have the idea here of rebellion. To bring it to an end. To complete it. Or again, some translations could say to restrain it. I want you to notice here, just one significant factor, is he says not just finish transgression, but he uses a definite article, and yes, that's not implied, it's actually there in the original, to finish the transgression, which most likely here focuses on the transgression of my people Israel, to bring to a completion, to bring to its end, to let it run its course, the rebellion of my people, my covenant people Israel. The point is the 
is that he's looking at the end, the fullness, the final culmination that God will allow for Israel to complete her rebellion and let her sin run its course. The rejection of Christ the Messiah when he came was climactic because of the significance of who Christ was and them rejecting their own God, in fact, putting their own God to death. That was climactic, but it wasn't even in itself the fullness and the completion of their sin. Let me give you just one interesting verse here, and I'll just read it. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 6. He says this, and he's speaking about the persecution that he has, Paul has experienced and the church is experiencing from the hand of the Jews. He says in verse 6, they're hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved with the result, listen, they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. In other words, they're still filling up the measure of their sin. They're still actively participating in their rejection and their hostility towards God himself and his promises. And so the idea of that is captured here, to finish the transgression. It's not finished yet. So this relates to Israel completing her rebellion against the Lord. And again, as I noted before, this is going to coincide with the sins of the world being brought to completion, ultimately even under the rule of Antichrist. But the focus here is on the end of the completion of Israel's rebellion. Israel's rebellion, which is again in reflection in one sense of man's, all of humanity's rebellion. But there will come a time, he says here, in which the earth and the kingdom will be marked not by transgression and rebellion, but by obedience. And so there's an implication here of a time in which God will bring in, and and this is uh, borrowing this phrase, an entirely new order. Remember that in salvation, God is essentially creating a new humanity, a redeemed and a regenerate humanity, pulled out of the fallen and the unregenerate and the dead humanity of the world. He is making alive a new people for himself and building this kingdom by spiritual birth and by spiritual reality. And here he's saying that that is going to come. There's going to be a time when all of this rebellion has run its course and it will be no more. He notes, secondly, building on that, and again, there is some overlap, but building on it, that he will, they will, the time for the finish the transgression and to make an end of sin. This is a more general term for sin, missing the mark. And here the idea is the time to cut off, bring to an end the habits of disobedience to the covenant. The habits of disobedience to the covenant. It will come to an end. This is, of course, going to be accomplished by the cross, by the crucifixion. That is the one place where these sins have been dealt with. And he's going to get to that next, but here is anticipating that. I like the one comment one made on this. I'm reading, this is a quote. So that they shall be no more, speaking of sins, but put away and abolished by the sacrifice and satisfaction of Christ for them as to guilt and punishment, so that those for whose sin satisfaction is made, no charge can be brought against them, nor the curse of the law reach them, nor any sentence of it be executed, or any punishment afflicted on them, but are entirely and completely saved from all of their sins, and here it is, and the sad effects of them. There it is. 
and the sad effects of them. And this is a tremendous promise. Sin is the great threat and the great destroyer of men and humanity. It always brings death. It always brings destruction. It always brings corruption to what is good that God made. There is a good thing in itself of creation that sin corrupts and it perverts and it distorts and it makes something ugly and it makes something destructive rather than good and for flourishing. Sin is deforming always the beautiful things of God's world created holy and perfect and good and making it grotesque and detestable and repulsive. That's what sin does. It does it to all of God's creation. It's why it's groaning. It does it to God's highest creation, which is man in his image, so that even the regenerate are groaning in themselves, waiting for this to be over, finally. And so what a promise. To finish transgression, to make an end of sin, to say there is a time when that will not be anymore. Particularly would they not have felt this, Daniel Hussein, the very shame and suffering that we as the people of God now is because of our sin, because we are always going the way of sin. And it's always bringing the judgment of God. What is the history of Israel and the history of man for that matter is that a promise of God, a glorious grace of God, a mercy of God, and yet sin is always going to lead down the wrong path. Sin is always going to take them to idolatry. Sin is always going to take them into the sins of the the evil practices of the nations around them. Sin is going to bring the destruction of the temple. Sin is going to make your greatest rulers fall. Sin. Sin which is endemic to you as the people of God and to humanity. And here's the promise. One day he'll make an end. One day he will make an end. And that won't be what defines us anymore. So with all humanity, sin blinds to Christ and leads to eternal judgment. And even with believers, sin is our greatest misery and frustration. We noted it earlier in Romans 7. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. And so here it is, one day it'll be no more. It's a promise. And then he says this, to finish transgression, it's going to run its course, to make an end of sin, it's going to be a time when it is no more. And here is at the heart of it, to make atonement for iniquity, to provide a final payment for sin, something that bulls and goats could never do, something that all of the blood of the sacrifices that they brought could never do, something that their own good works before the law could never do. You think about that, it's a helpless situation. It's a helpless situation. How could they make atonement for their sin? How can you make atonement for your sin? How can any of us make atonement for our sin? What could we offer to God? Obedience? that doesn't take away our disobedience. And the obedience is never perfect and full, even as it is. And so to make atonement for sin, this is the great longing of the heart of those who have been made to feel the reality of guilt and sin within them. If you know Christ, what was the great and glorious moment is when you understand, understood for the first time in the midst of feeling the corruption of your own internal sin, that God has provided a solution. He's provided a Savior, that you can be freed, that you can be forgiven, 
that your sin can be atoned for and that in fact it has been atoned for. So this is a glorious promise. But that was just the problem, isn't it, that led Israel there and just the problem that leads even the professing church so many away from the true gospel and just the problem that leads so many away from the gospel in the first place to never believe in Christ is there's not an adequate grasp of the reality of sin. There's just not an adequate grasp. And so Israel, even with all of God's deliverances, even with these great examples of confession of sin, even with the great examples of judgment, even when they were brought back into the land and idolatry no longer became the dominant reality of their sin, it was merely replaced with something else. And that is the self-righteousness that we meet with in the Gospels. The very thing that Paul had to say, but Christ is the end of the law to those who believe. You're trying to establish your own righteousness through the law, and for that, you'll never know the righteousness of God, Romans chapter 10. And so this is the issue, that before we can delight in this and even understand the greatness of this promise, you and I and we and the church and the professing people of God need to understand the greatest burden that we have is our iniquity, is our sin, is our transgression, and is our corruption. We'll never understand the glory of what Christ accomplished until then. And the people didn't, and that's why they rejected him. That's why when they read the great account of this provision of God in Isaiah, they missed it. They did. Amen. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. It says, The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He'll prolong his days. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. That is propitiation. And by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify, make righteous the many as he will bear their iniquities. So this this promise has a background to it. The whole sacrificial system of Israel, the promise of this great suffering servant who will one day put away forever the sins of his people, the sins that they were reminded of daily and every year when sacrifices were brought to the temple for the sins of his people. Here he says, God's going to make atonement for sin. This was accomplished then in the crucifixion of the Son of God, the promised Messiah. It was there that in his perfect obedience, God's righteousness was satisfied on behalf of his people once and for all so that the writer of Hebrews could say there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. You know what's helpful, I think, uh, to, to kind of grasp that a little bit more is when we think, why don't you bring an animal to be sacrificed? Why don't you kill it? You should. For over millennia, That's what God's people had to do. If you sinned, you brought an animal and you killed it and its blood was everywhere and you gave it to the priest and that was how you were cleansed. When you confessed your sin, you offered up a proper sacrifice. The priest mediated that for you at the temple of God and you were cleansed to do what? To come back tomorrow and bring another sacrifice. To be cleansed, to kill this animal, to do what? To come back tomorrow, to bring another sacrifice. 
Do you ever think, why don't we do that? Why did, how could God change that? Well, that's the glory of what he's saying, because Christ has made atonement for sin. And grasp these words, there no longer remains an offering for sin. That is grace. That's grace. If you know Christ, and if we know Christ, our iniquity has been completely atoned for. Not 98% of it, 99% of it, not the rest we're trying to work out with, the rest, with Catholics so that some can get burned off in purgatory. No, it's done. It's completed. There is no longer any sacrifice. And here is that great promise. He will make an atonement for iniquity. He's not saying you will make atonement for iniquity. He's not saying you will do something that will atone for your iniquity. He's saying that God will do it. And He did in Christ. Let's note just... Obviously, very quickly here, the last three. First, he's going to deal with sin. He's going to bring the final atonement to his people. It's going to run its course. He's going to make an end of it altogether. And he's going to make atonement for it. And then, he's, these last three, he's going to bring an everlasting righteous, seal up vision and prophecy, and anoint the most holy place. And what does he mean by these things? Well, let's consider them. He'll bring in, this is the fourth promise, he'll bring in everlasting righteousness. This is a permanent and a complete righteousness. A righteousness that will mark eternally God's people, putting an end to sin, atonement for every transgression, to where obedience and righteousness and conformity to the will of God is the norm. A continuing obedience, a glad conformity to his will, to justice and to truth. The things that they did not get. Remember what he said to the Pharisees. You tithe mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected what? Mercy. Justice. You've missed it. And truth, ultimately. He says, but that day is going to come to an end. Now again, this is ultimately what Christ would accomplish at the cross in laying the foundation. Israel was forever stumbling, forever stumbling over the stumbling block. And for them, it was their misunderstanding of the law. And their misunderstanding of the law, particularly as we come into the New Testament, was essentially this. That the law became a means for them of how they would, by their obedience, bring about the promises of God. Bring about the fulfillment of God's kingdom purposes. But they missed the point of it. Yeah, if you could obey, even as Jesus said to the rich young ruler, you know the law, you know the commandments, keep them. What he missed is that I can't keep them. He missed his sin, and that was representative essentially of Israel. They missed the reality of their sin. They saw their goodness, they did not see their corruption and their guilt. And so the promise then when Christ in his work who completed all righteousness, is this. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest, being witnessed by the law of prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. We are justified through Christ. The redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Christ who was displayed publicly as a propitiation, a satisfaction for the holy wrath of God in His blood, that is His atoning death, His violent and suffering and atoning death through faith to demonstrate His righteousness in the present time 
Because of the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time so that he could be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so he brought in everlasting righteousness. But guess what? That righteousness, while everlasting in the sense of the completion of Christ's accomplishment, so he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We have been justified by faith, therefore we have peace with God, though there is that foundation of righteousness. Guess what? Everlasting righteousness is not what's manifest in our own lives and on earth right now. This is a future event. This is something to come. This is when righteousness is not just laid for in the foundation, but righteousness is the reality of God's people and their experience on the earth and in His kingdom. This is future. He's going to bring in everlasting righteousness. It's commensurate with finishing transgression, making an end of sin. That's not the case right now. It's not even the case for New covenant believers, not yet. We press on toward the goal, a goal that we have not reached yet, the goal of conformity to Christ in the resurrection. So it's a hope. We're waiting for everlasting righteousness to be brought in, to be the mark of God's people on earth. This was the hope of the kingdom. This was the hope ultimately of God's people. Now we're not going to turn there. We'll come back to some of this later, but it's the great promises of Christmas that we read. Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah 11, his kingdom is going to come. It's going to be a kingdom marked by justice. It's going to be global. It's going to be from shore to shore. It's going to be with the exaltation of God where everyone who is present is going to bring glory to him. It's going to be the kingdom of the Messiah, the Messiah, the promised one. This is an encouragement to us as New Covenant believers as well, because we participate in these promises. But here, he's declaring that these promises are going to come out of his faithfulness to Israel, and it will encompass the world. Next, he says this, to seal up vision and prophecy. Now, I am, for time's sake, going to have to pick it up here next week, but that's okay, because that will make a nice segue into what the actual prophecy is and how it connects. But I don't want to just rush through it and mention it. Uh, so we'll pick it up there next week. But let me in short say this. He's going to seal up vision and prophecy and he's going to anoint the most holy place. What does he mean to seal up vision and prophecy? Well, look at this next week but essentially it is to say the fullness of the knowledge of God will spread from shore to shore and the revelation of God will be fully known because of the presence of God a reality with his people and anoint the holy place is looking to the glory of that holy place and the kingdom that he is bringing about but we'll talk about that next week here the encouragement is for us God has provided atonement for our sin. God has given us a promise that one day that sin will be forever removed. And do you realize all of these promises are what are pictured here in these elements when we take the bread and the wine? What are we remembering? His blood. That He will make an atonement for sin. That our iniquity has been removed from us as far as the east is from the west. That there is no longer an offering. 
that the copies and the shadows of the things that Israel knew for so long are no longer necessary because he's entered into the more perfect tabernacle, the sanctuary, into the heavenlies for us who have been cleansed by better things than the blood of bulls and goats. It's been cleansed by the blood of Christ who is there right now for his people interceding for us. That's the glorious promise that we have. That one day, what we long for and what has been given to us in part, in the beginning, in, 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 the begin, in part in our experience anyway, will one day be a full reality. And it's here, the blood, His flesh was given to us, one in obedience and perfect righteousness fulfilling the law of God for us, as a sacrifice taking the wrath of God for us, in His resurrection body that we will one day be conformed to. We remember in these elements as well that He is right now, not as an idea or a vague idea, but as a real, exalted, human Lord Jesus Christ is now personally in the presence of God for us, interceding for us. We remember that His kingdom is coming and that He will bring it about and all these promises we read are going to come about. He says we proclaim His kingdom until He comes. And so all of these things we remember in these elements. And so usually I say this afterwards, but let me say it beforehand. So these are for believers then. These are, these are, these are symbols that we participate in as believers, they are expressions of our faith in Christ. A faith not just that we intellectually ascend to, but a faith that is evident by the fullness of our lives, by the things that we think and how we want our minds to be renewed, by our affections and how we want them to be always set more on Christ, the very disposition and orientation of our life towards the truth and towards the gospel and towards Christ. That the very confession of our sin is a normal part of our life because we are always aware of where we're falling short and running back to realize that our hope and our salvation is in Christ alone, nothing that we can do. And so it produces a genuine humility in the life of God's people. And so we who know Christ come and we celebrate in these glorious realities. But it's only for believers. If you don't know Christ, if you're a Sunday morning churchgoer and your Bible is closed the rest of the week, or if your Bible is open, but it's not transforming your life in any way. Or if you're gladly living in your sin with no sense of repentance, but think that God is impressed because of the occasional good thing that you do or nice thing that you say about Him. That's not salvation. That's not. And so, if that's you, then these elements are not for you. And you need to let them pass by until you have confessed your sin and turned to Christ to trust in Him. At which point then you need to be baptized <laughs> and then to take the elements. So with that in mind, let's go to the Lord in prayer and the men will hand out the elements and we'll take them together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. Grace, grace, we sing that song. It's all of grace, our life. We are not under law, but we are under grace because Christ, we are in you and we share in your life. Help us to understand these things. It's so hard to lay hold of that in our hearts. It's so hard for us sometimes to see and to hold on with clarity the reality of these promises that you have given to us. But you have not left us to our own resources and so we ask you, Holy Spirit, who has been given to us in whom we are sealed, who indwells us, who is our teacher, we ask you to please Reveal these glorious realities to us. And even as we come to your table, 
Will you remind our hearts afresh of the glories of the gospel, the reality of our forgiveness, the certainty of our assurance, the hope that one day we will stand before you blameless with great joy because of Christ, what you have done for us. And we stand in Christ. Would you remind us of these things? Would you teach us of these things? Would you, would you show us in such a way that it actually changes our daily walk and the things we desire and the things we do, the things we want in our thinking? Would you do this, O oh God, for your glory and because in you is all of our joy? And we pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.